We are in 1 John chapter 4, and we'll be reading verses 1 through 6. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know that the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. It's the word of God. You may be seated. Not much of an introduction today. We're going straight into the scripture. I hope you have your Bibles open. In verse 1, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits. This is what we call discernment. That not everybody who says, I have a word from God, really has a word from God. In fact, so many people who, who pretend to speak for God are speaking from a different spirit. When it comes to discernment, C.H. Spurgeon put it, I think, so well. He said, discernment is not telling is not the ability to tell the difference between right and wrong. Rather, it is the difference between right and almost right. Deception, the best deceptions, have about 90% of the truth in them. If you've ever played the party game, Two Truths and a Lie, you know your lie needs to seem incredibly plausible, mixed in with the truth, and your truths have to be as outlandish as you can make them, and they are more readily accepted that way. Today, my message, which is already the message of first one, is about discernment. And discernment is not optional. In fact, many people see discernment almost as a vice instead of a virtue. I remember I was talking with a friend just the other day, another pastor. We were talking about struggles we've had because this one person had said, um, when it came to discernment, it's just throwing rocks. Well, if you are a shepherd and you have sheep and you see some wolves, please throw some rocks. A shepherd who does not throw rocks at the wolves is in league with the wolves. Discernment is not optional. It is mandatory. There are a host of enemies who want to fool you and want to steal from you. They want to steal your hope. They want to steal your joy. They want to steal your peace. The problem becomes, we often think, when it comes to discernment, we often think that we are so smart, we are so pure, and we are so spiritual that we will naturally know the difference between false teaching and true teaching. If this was true, we wouldn't need the New Testament at all. If this was true, we wouldn't need the New Testament at all because the New Testament writers would just say, um, use the force, Luke, or whatever permutation of that. Instead, they tell us to search the scriptures, to test the spirits. I think it's, uh, it's quite surprising. Um, it's quite surprising when you focus on verse 1, that not everyone who says that they have a word from God really has a word from God. Just because someone says that it is the Spirit that moves them, it doesn't mean it's the Holy Spirit that is moving them. We are to test the spirits. Already in verse 1, we have this assumption that the, there is an invisible world, that the spiritual world is a fact, not an opinion. It's not an ideology, but it, there is a real force in the heavenlies, in an unseen realm all around us, that while we cannot see them or touch them, they can affect us in drastic drastic ways. Oh, you're wonderful, Becca. Thank you so much. When it comes to their agenda, we know what their agenda is, to steal, kill, and destroy. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Screwtape Letters, in the opening, had this to say, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. 
One is to disbelieve their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. You see this. Some people are just, they just don't like anything spiritual, so they just ignore it completely. Yet we have an enemy who wants to steal, kill, and destroy. And then there are others who go so deep into extra-biblical content, and in fact, even their just own imaginations, that they have developed this laws about spiritual activity that exists nowhere but their own minds. And the, devils are, the devil is equally happy with the mystic as they are with the materialist. Their MO, their modus operandus, demons have an agenda. I think we see, we see them more in the line. I think, unfortunately, we see them more through the lens of Hollywood than we do the Bible. In Hollywood, it's so dramatic. You have them spitting pea soup and crab walking everywhere. And, of course, we do have exorcis- exorcisms in the Bible that are dramatic. Somebody trying to throw themselves into fire breaking chains that are put on them. But can I tell you something? Most of the devil's activity is in beliefs and thoughts that are against the word of God. Because the devil wants to tear away your joy, your hope, your peace. And if he can, he wants you to to damn you to hell itself. Demons have agenda. I think once again, I think we see um, Hollywood and we think, well, if nobody's head is spinning around 360, then we have nothing to worry about. But the Bible tells us what their aims are. Their aims are to come to kill, steal, kill, and destroy. How does the enemy do this? How does the enemy do do this most of the time? He attacks the mind. Dear believer, he can't attack your spirit. Your spirit is alive. And the Holy Spirit is inside you. But he will attack your mind, will, and emotions. Those are fair games still. He will get you to believe things that are just completely untrue. And then when you come to these things and you try to hold God to things he's never said, he will take away your joy, your peace, and even your love. How does the enemy do this? He attacks the mind. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 6 is probably some, some of the portion of Scripture that is misused the worst when it comes to discernment and it comes to spiritual warfare. So let's go over this together here. Verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not according to the flesh. So some people will take these verses out of context, and they will develop things that you will not find in the rest of this scripture right here. They will develop um, laws and things like that. How do you deal with this spirit? How do you deal with that spirit? They'll say our weapons are not flesh and blood, so you have these certain prayers that you need to pray. But let's continue reading on. Verse 4. For the weapons of our warfare are not the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. I like Frank Peretti as an author, but he has completely twisted this when it comes to his writings. Let me explain. When you hear strongholds, do you think that somewhere in the heavenlies, the devil has like a castle, and the demons are all in there, and we need to pray these strongholds down? If you do, it's because you've been more influenced by Christian fiction novels than you have from the Bible itself. I'm there. I'm not throwing stones. That's where I have been in the past. I was speaking to this with a friend, but if we read on here, verse 5, we destroy arguments. What are the strongholds? They're arguments. And every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. What is the aim of the devils, the demons, the Satan in your life? It's to make you believe things that are untrue about God. And that becomes a stronghold. It becomes something you just go back to. You just think automatically in the back of your head. That is the devil's aims. That is why the devil works through subtlety most of the time when it comes to entertainment. Most of the time, the most dangerous ones are not the ones that want to tell you something evil is good. It's the ones that want you to assume it from the beginning. As we read on here, to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. This tells us what demons do. They build strongholds in the mind. This has, in the past, been taken out of context. Many deliverance uh, ministries will use this as a proof text to develop a methodology that is completely separate from the Scripture. Unfortunately, every deliverance ministry I've, I've ever really looked into has very similar things in which they will have a book of spells or prayers. They are spells, though. In the first century, you had Jewish exorcists who had these spells that they would use to exorcise demons. And, of course, they didn't work very well. We know mostly of them from the seven sons of Sceva, 
who took, they say, um, in the name of Jesus whom Paul preached, we adjure you to come out of him. This was a spell that they would use, and they were using the name of Jesus for it. The name of Jesus is not a spell. Some have these books of prayers and stuff. Well, this is how you rip this demon out of this stronghold and, or whatever. But strongholds here are entrenched false teaching. What kids get taught in school is a stronghold. If they are taught, they are made, they are only made out of the same decaying stuff that everything else is. And then we wonder why kids have no respect for life. Why we have a society that has no respect for life. We've been preaching for generations now. You're just decaying matter. So what does it matter if you take your own life or take somebody else's life? It's just decaying matter. And in 10,000 years, who cares? That's a stronghold. There's other strongholds in our society of sex and relationships. So many strongholds that teach that people need to test each other out before they commit to one another, which is against the knowledge of God. What is the context of these strongholds? Well, I just read it to you. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Spiritual warfare most of the time looks more like the case for Christ instead of the exorcist. It's much bigger than that too. It's true that demons can possess people, make them shake, throw themselves into fire. Demon-possessed people may even use um, divination to supposedly tell the future, and I could go on and on and on. But most of the time, spiritual activity is found as the result, not in the doing, but the result of false beliefs. That is why Paul wrote to the Corinthians, it's every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. It's false teaching. Not every false teaching comes from the mouth of a demon, but every attempt to subvert the truth is demonic. Peter, who was the apostle, the leader of the apostles, who was not possessed by Satan, when Jesus told him that he must suffer and die, Peter said, may this never happen to you, Lord. And you know what Jesus said to him? Get behind me, Satan. You have not the mind of God. And that probably changed the way we do things, right? As people make their truth claims, get behind me, Satan. You have not the mind of God. When you are doing the devil's work, the devil, the, the Lord calls it as it is. Get behind me, Satan. False teaching about Jesus is antichrist. This may interest you to know the word for word in the New Testament is the word logos. It's the beginning of John's gospel in archaeologos. That's Greek, so if you're like, that's Greek to me, Jason, it is. In archaeologos, logos, it may sound very familiar to you, and more than just hearing me talk about it, because we have a cognate in the English, the word logic comes from logos, the logic of God. Satan attacks logic because he attacks the word of God, and he has from the beginning. He, we then oppose, we rip down, and we dismantle every opinion, stronghold, and argument that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. Demonic powers express themselves in truth claims and belief that contradict what God has said. So when you see in the greater culture at large, things like simple, simple biology or whatever being contradicted, it's demonic. It's not just a difference of opinion. It's demonic. It is the work of the devil and his strongholds that he is putting up. The spiritual deception in the Bible. In the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 3. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign and wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after our gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul. Remember what I told you where the devil attacks? Your heart and your soul and your mind. And God will allow certain people to come in because it's a test of whether or not your love is growing cold or not. It should be a wake-up call for us. And he says, if somebody comes in, they make predictions, they do signs and wonders, they come true, but they tell you to serve other gods. It's because the message is what we look at first, before the signs and wonders. 
Sometimes we get this backwards. You know, um, we are told that signs and wonders follow those who believe. They don't proceed. Here we have false teachers, false prophets. The signs and wonders proceed as trying to get people away from the true doctrine of Jesus Christ. I remember I was talking with, um, well, he used to be a famous evangelist. I don't know if he is anymore. And, and another person, too. And we were talking about different things about student ministry, you know, teenager ministry. And one made, the, one made the argument that, hey, you know something? If kids went into school and they laid their hands on a kid in a wheelchair and he got up, you'd have revival in your school. And I, I sat there. I was like, not according to Jesus. According to Jesus, he gave a parable about this rich man and a guy named Lazarus. The rich man had all the blessings of this world. He dies, he goes to hell. Lazarus is so pitiful that the stray dogs, instead of biting him, lick his wounds. When he dies, he goes to Abraham's side, Old Testament heaven. And the man in hell, he begs Abraham, Father Abraham, send Lazarus back from the dead to my family to tell them, to warn them not to end up in this place. And Abraham, of course, Jesus speaking through Abraham says, they have the law, they have the prophets. If they don't believe them, they won't believe somebody coming back from the dead. That's why signs and wonders follow, not proceed, those who believe. They are an encouragement of those who are now have faith in Jesus Christ, not to actually stimulate faith. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of God. In Jesus' day, there was rapid spiritual deception. We look at the ministry of Jesus. You read about people being demon-possessed and oppressed. There is one who the demons are sent into pigs. The spiritual realm could have no more missed the coming of Jesus Christ than a city could have missed a nuke because Jesus wipes out spiritual darkness wherever, he, wherever his foot stepped. It was, it was the religious teachings of that day too. Not just what we see in the possessions, but we also see in the teachers of the law and of the Pharisees and Sadducees. To them, Jesus said they were like their father, the devil. There were also a group of Jewish mystics. They were around in Jesus' day, but we really don't, we don't really encounter them until we get to the book of Acts. And there's a number of encounters with these Jewish itinerant exorcists. They would go to different places and they would purport to drive out demons. The most well-known are the seven sons of Sceva. They are the ones I mentioned before. They use the name of Jesus like a spell and the demon rips off their clothes and drives them out of town after he beats them. There's actually another guy early on in the ministry of Paul the Apostle. And he's keeping this somebody else from believing in Jesus Christ. He was known as a Jewish mystic. He's an itinerant exorcist. And of course, Paul to him says, and this is Andrew's favorite line, uh, you son of the devil. In John's day, it's unique. Instead of it coming from these itinerant Jewish exorcists, instead of coming from other religions and other things like this, deception was coming from within the church. The prophecy of Jesus was coming true, that from among them, there would be false teachers and false prophets. It's the enemies within the church that are far more dangerous than those outside. They, like their brothers before them, claim to have special power, special knowledge, and secret understanding. Inwardly, they are like their father, the devil. They, they insist that they have a spirit. It's just not the Holy Spirit. Spiritual deception today. We have, pop, we have pop spirituality. There is a new religion that has gripped our nation, that has gripped this world. It has a cosmology. They believe that there's a creator force, creator God, whoever she or he may be. And he or she just is cool with whatever you want to do. And they have laws. They have a devil. And they have all these things. They just don't have redemption. It's the saddest thing ever. Somebody gets canceled. There's no way back. You just hope people forget until they don't forget and they find your tweet from when you were in seventh grade and now you're done. Pop spirituality goes beyond that. It gets into the church. Every now and again, there is a book, there is a movie, there is something that people are very much focused on, but it has just enough deception to chip away at the, at the true teachings of Jesus Christ. In the early 2000s, there was the book The Shack. And if you like the book The Shack, I'm about to ruin it for you. Along with its emotional manipulation was also bad doctrine called modalism. Modalism is the thought, instead of the God being Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three distinct persons, modalism would say, 
It's all just one entity, one person, switching between different aspects. Which gets really complicated when you get to the baptism of Jesus. This is my son, whom I well pleased. Thank you. And then a dove. Um, <laughs> you switching between all three? Not, not at all. The shack was embraced by so many people. I read, I read the first chapter of it. One thing that we're always kind of afraid to when it comes to Christian pop culture is to say what we really think. And I really thought it was just so boring I didn't want to finish it. Uh, other people did, and if you enjoyed it, good for you. I, I didn't. But my wife had read it, and she told me things on it that just made my, my jaw just hit the ground. Like, for instance, visualizing God the Father. That might seem like a small thing, but it's actually against one of the commandments. You know, we don't have to visualize God the Father because we can pray to him. We can pray directly to him. I don't need an idol to look at to inspire my faith. I can come to the gates with thanksgiving in my heart, into his courts with praise. Today, probably the most current one would be the Enneagram. If you look at the origins of the Enneagram, they are occult. They are not ancient. It comes from the 70s in which, in which a South American mystic developed the Enneagram through automatic writing. And these things influenced the church in order to steal away the liberty of believers. We have Eastern religion that has made its way into churches as well. It's made its way into popular culture. This isn't a very current example, but I don't suppose you've heard that song before, My Sweet Lord, by former Beatle George Harris. You know, it goes like, my sweet Lord, hallelujah. Did you ever catch how second stanza, Harry Krishna, that was on purpose. George Harris has been on record saying that he made it because he wanted all of these like small town bumpkins to be singing along in this song, not realizing that my sweet Lord isn't Jesus Christ. It's Harry Krishna because he was a Harry Krishna. And he draped it in religious-sounding goop in order for people to more easily digest it. And today that is happening through Eastern methodology all throughout people who call themselves Christians. It's not unheard of to even find a Buddha statue in a Christian's home. That's really, that's really crazy. That should not be. Out-of-body experiences, tarot cards, and many other things have made its way. But when, you, when we look, all those things stripped away, we also have moralistic therapeutic deism. It's going to be a hard one for me to talk to because this is one I kind of bought into for a little while. Moralistic, meaning that you are teaching morals. There is right, there is wrong. Therapeutic, meaning that your concern is not people to be saved from sin, but it's for them to be you know, mentally healthy or self-actualized. Deism, meaning it's draped in the vernacular of the church. God, Jesus, and other things in order to try to make it valid, just like that song, Hallelujah, My Sweet Lord. It makes it more palatable for people from Christian or whatever you have, you community organizations to accept. It's a hard one for me to talk about because when I was first in ministry as a youth pastor, I was at, the, I was at my interview and they were asking me about what do I hope to do in the youth ministry with the kids? And I'm like, Oh, I want to see them self-actualized. Because I wanted to be seen as smart too, which is whatever. I wasn't. It comes from Abraham Maslow and his uh, hierarchy of needs. And at the top of the hierarchy of needs, which is the pyramid, you're self-actualized. You're, you really get in touch with who you are. And I'm like, I want to see them know, know who they are in Jesus. And all this gobbledygook, as opposed to be saved from their sins, delivered from the works of the enemy. This has made its way into so many churches because it's a, it's a message that's accepted by the world. You can preach these messages at a TED Talk, and nobody bats an eye. You can even include God and Jesus. Nobody bats an eye, but it's Christless. It's devoid of any, devoid of any power for real change or real life. Test the spirits. This isn't the only place that tells us to judge teachings or preachers or anybody who promotes who says that they are speaking for God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 29, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. I grew up in a church where we had the charismatic gifts like all the time. And we had like 10 in one service. If you have 10 in one service, nobody's weighing what is being said. As your pastor, that's something we do here. If somebody gives a word, we weigh what is said. 
And if it's not from the Lord, I will say from the, I will say from the lectern, it's not from the Lord. We weigh what is said. Right now, you, you've got your Bibles open. I hope you do. Or your phone's open. You're looking at what I'm saying. You're making sure what, what I'm saying is in the Scripture. It is what is being said. Because I am not above accountability. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 21. But test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Verse 1 tells us not every spirit is from God. We are to test the spirits. So how do you test the spirits? I have five tests that we can use. You can see the sermon as five small points or two long points. Because they all fall into one of two categories. You're testing the message or the messenger. The first two really are a review from other parts in Scripture. The next three are found in the Scripture we read today, which gives us a clear test that we test as we hear truth claims. Test, um, so we either have the message or the messenger. The first test is test them by the word. Test the message by the word of God. Two, Test the fruit of the messenger. Three, test how Jesus is, is identified. Four, test if, if the message is worldly. And five, test if the messenger is teachable. Number one, is it biblical? Test the message itself. Acts 17, there are a group of Jewish believers that are honored more than others. They were known as the Bereans, and they were honored because instead of just looking at the miracles that were being done, it says in verse 11 of chapter 17 of Acts, now these Jews were more, no, were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. The first fruits of all teaching is what is being taught. You don't get to go from there and ignore what is being taught to being like, well, they seem really nice. We look at what's being taught first. The first fruits of any teacher is what they teach. The verse in Deuteronomy, the Lord tells the people that if someone comes into the camp and they prophesy and they work miracles, but they tell you to go after other gods to drive that person out because God is testing where their love is. Every teaching must be judged by God's faithful and by his word. If someone has a word of the Lord for you, you search the scriptures to see if what they are saying is so. If the individual says, don't worry about that, what I'm telling you is not in the scriptures, run away. They have nothing to tell you. If they say something against the scripture, there's something called the law of non-contradiction. God is not a man in which he does not keep his word. God did not change his mind. The word of the Lord operates on the law of non-contradiction. Real briefly, you may point to times in the scripture where it says that God changes his mind. That is not an exception to the rule. It's that God being unchangeable and we being, and we are changeable. When we change, then God changes his mind in that. Now that you've changed, God has not changed his mind about sin and repentance. A great case of that is Nineveh. The, the testimony was Nineveh would, would be destroyed. Nineveh repents. God has not changed his mind. They have changed. The law of non-contradiction. Instead of just looking for scripture that validates what that teacher is saying, see if there's any scripture that invalidates it, that contradicts what they are saying, and always use this rule of thumb. A clear passage is greater than one where you're supposing what is being meant. A clear passage is always better. It's, it's, always, it's always above one where you're supposing what is meant. Proof text and Satan. When I say you need to test everything by searching the word like the Brians, most people will take that as, as, as if they have a single verse in support of, then they are preaching according to the scripture. That is called a proof text. You already have your idea, and then you go backwards in order to support it. The idea doesn't come from the Bible, it comes from you, and then you try to prove that idea. And you can do that with anything, though, right? Any work of, any work of literature, you can just pick and choose and make them, believe, make them say something completely opposite of what they are saying, but to understand it in context. William Shakespeare, Shakespeare in The Merchant of Venice, this is where this quote is from, the devil can cite scripture for his purpose. An evil soul producing holy... Witness is like a villain with a smiling cheek. A goodly apple rotten at the heart. The devil we see in the temptation of Jesus Christ. 
he uses scripture, but he doesn't use it in context. He uses it the way the seven sons of Sceva do, as kind of a spell, as opposed to the context, and Jesus brings it to the context. Man shall not live on bread alone. You shall not put the Lord your God to a test, to the test. You shall worship your God and serve him only. This means we need to grow in the word. Sometimes we are in the middle of the conference, we're in the middle of camp, we're in the middle of something else, and our, our defenses are down. We need to be so versed in the scripture that it even comes to us as we're hearing it, that there might be something against this. Maybe not to receive it right away, but to be like the Bereans. Receive the word with joy and search the scriptures to make sure it is so. We need to constantly be growing in the word. As your pastor, that is always my, my chief responsibility during the week. I need to grow in the word. Because I'm preaching to you the word of God. And if what I'm preaching to you is not God's word, I have reason for trembling. But if it is God's word and it grinds against you, you have reason for trembling. You test the message, as in, is it biblical? Do you, do you test the messenger? Do they have fruit? Jesus, in Matthew 7, talks about false teachers who come as wolves in sheep's clothing to test them by their fruit. This is the problem with superstar preachers. You don't know their fruit. When speaking, I remember speaking of a, to another believer, and I was talking about a certain teacher who was just teaching things that were against God's, the knowledge of God. And they're like, let's look at their fruit. And I'm like, you don't know their fruit. You don't know them. You see their propaganda. You don't see them. Very heartbreakingly, this became such a clear fact with the life of Ravi Zacharias. I was greatly blessed through the ministry of Ravi Zacharias. I had no clue he was living a devil life, a sexual immorality. How could I? I don't know him. This is the problem. We see people on TV and stuff. People think they have this relationship with them. No, you don't. You don't know them. Well, they seem nice. You don't know that. That's the propaganda they're, they're pouring out. This is the problem. And I have no problem with megachurch, but this is the problem with a megachurch. You don't know the pastor. I was a part of a megachurch one time. If you want to see the pastor, you're going to have to make uh, an, a request a couple months in advance. If you try to approach the pastor after service, he has security who will bend your arm behind your back. So you don't know him. Here you, here you know me because if I'm, at, if I'm at Fairway and I'm like going irate at one of the checkers, um, Carson Olmstead can tell you because he works there. <laughs> I've been here three years. You should know me by now. I would hope anyway. You can see the fruit of the Holy Spirit or the lack of the fruit of the Holy Spirit in my life. When it comes to these superstar preachers and people are like, well, I don't need to go to church. My church is YouTube. You don't know their fruit. The fruit we are speaking of here is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. A person can say, I am so spiritual. I am just in touch with God. If you don't see that in their life, they're a liar. No, they're not. Because that is what the Spirit does in their life. Integrity matters. False teachers, pro false prophets, eventually will reveal themselves. If it's often not worn on their sleeve, but watch out what, when, it, when it happens. When someone contradicts their word with God's word, you will see a side of them that you never guessed. <coughs> Some live a double life, but integrity matters. I don't mean that the man or woman of God never sins. I sin, but it's not about perfection. It's about direction. Amen. Test the message. How is Jesus identified? Verses 2 and 3. By this, now we've gotten into, now we've gone away from other forms of testing the spirits, now to the exact scripture we're at, 1 John 4, 2 and 3. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, which you heard, heard was coming and is now in the world already. This is an interesting couple of verses because most people just ignore them because mostly there's not a lot of people who say that Jesus didn't come in the flesh. Even atheists will say that there was a man who lived at one time named Jesus who was a good teacher. So we're like, what do, what do we do with this? Well, really, it's in the details of what John is putting out here and in the context of what he is dealing with in his day. And this actually, this is an incredible proof of whether or not the person is speaking from the Spirit of God or not. 
Once again, this might seem strange. Who doesn't confess Jesus came in the flesh? Most of the time, the problem is coming, is confessing that Jesus is God and Lord. So what do we do with this verse? Well, we don't understand the context to this. But the context is this, is John is attacking the demonic Gnostic belief that either one, the Christ spirit came upon Jesus, the man, at his baptism, meaning that Jesus is separate from Christ, that Christ is some kind of consciousness that can envelop you. Or two, when people saw Jesus, they imagined a body. Bad theology often starts with one's view of Jesus. Because the devil hates the son. The dragon still wants to devour the baby. Revelation. Jesus Christ. Notice, John uses the full name, the full title of Jesus. Iosus Christos. Jesus Christ, instead of just Jesus or just Christ. That is our cue, that John doesn't mean simply that someone believes that Jesus Christ was born and was alive. He is talking about Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, indivisible, meaning cannot be divided, cannot be separated from one another. This is not the only test, but it is a foundational test. Does the person believe the right things about Jesus Christ? Because if they have the wrong Jesus, they have the wrong gospel. And as Paul says in Galatians chapter 1, that even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a different gospel, let him be eternally condemned. The child of this false Gnostic heresy today is kenosis. Kenosis makes Jesus less. It is the theology that Jesus on this earth was not fully God. They would say that Jesus laid aside his godhood, meaning that while he was on this earth, he was not fully God, he was just partially God, but fully man. This is as wrong as you can get. It's a different Christ. And they do this to lower Jesus. For instance, Kenneth Copeland said that Jesus did no more than any twice-born person could do, including saving people from their sin. That's demonic, my friends. It's not simply wrong. It's demonic. Creflo Dollar, many, 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 many times, has said that Jesus was not God on this earth. It's demonic. Bethel Church in Redding, California, I know many of us like their music and everything, but their pastor has said the very same thing. This is the child of that Gnostic heresy of kenosis that makes Jesus less. And it's so subtle, because of course, Jesus wasn't exercising all of his godly attributes, was he? He dies. He's risen again. Well, the scripture says he humbled himself. He didn't exercise, but he still was. It's why he tells Peter, at one word I could have 12 legion of angels come defend me. He can't do that if he's not fully God. If he, if he just cut off a portion of himself to come to earth, he can't do that. But he can do that because he is fully God. He allows himself to be crucified. He is not the victim of anybody else. He lays down his life for his people. The dragon still wants to eat the sun. Last year for Christmas, I had a series about Christmas from the point of view of Revelation, because there's the Christmas story in Revelation. I called it the cosmic context of Christmas. I said every nativity is missing one character. Ours is no longer, thanks to the Owens. And that is the dragon. In Revelation, there is a dragon waiting for the son to be born that he might devour him. And the dragon is furious till this day because he cannot eat the son. This expressed itself through Herod having children, boys under a certain age killed. This expresses itself through the passion of this world to stamp out any Christian sympathies. This expresses itself through false teachings on the nature, authority, and teachings of Jesus Christ. Next test. You test the message. Is it worldly? Verses 4 and 5. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. You are not more powerful, smarter, or better, better at the fiddle than the devil. If the devil comes down to Algona, I do not suggest you challenge him to a fiddle or any other kind of contact, contest. You won't win. As John has already stated, that there will be an Antichrist, but now the spirit of Antichrist is already in the world. 
and it permeates this world to the point which Paul the Apostle said, the God of this world is the devil. You know what that means? It doesn't mean the devil, like the devil now has ownership of the world. It means that this world worships the devil. Satanists will say, well, we don't worship the devil. We worship an idea of Satan as individualistic. They worship the devil. Buddhists, Hindus, Muslims, they worship the devil. People who call themselves Christians will also call the devil their God when they make a Jesus up in their mind who is nothing like the Jesus Christ from the Bible. They have tried to replace Jesus Christ in the, in the flesh with the figment of their imaginations. Antichrist means opposed to Christ, but it also means a rival to Christ. Therefore, the spirit of Antichrist is in this world, and it looks to replace Christ, to replace the Savior. But we should remember this. Greater is he who is within us than he who is in the world. So many people are so worried because the influence of Christianity in this nation is growing less and less and less. Let's go to the back. Let's go to the first part of the book of Acts. No influence. Persecuted minority. Still, just two of them are brought before the Sanhedrin and they said these two are turning the world upside down with their message of Jesus Christ. You know why? Because even though the spirit of Antichrist was loose in the world, greater is he who is within them than he who is in the world. Are you afraid, my friend, of what is happening right now in America across the world? Don't be. Greater is he who is within you than he who is at work in this world. And one believer put into the darkest situation can overcome because greater is he who is within them than he who is in the world. False teaching comes from every direction, but his sheep hear his word. And greater is he who is within them than he who is in this world. The message of Antichrist is acceptable to this world because it comes from this world. It is worldly. You know, without the power of the Holy Spirit, it's impossible to understand how Christianity prospers at all. The message today seems to be come to... Come to Jesus, come to God, and he'll fix all your problems. He'll make you healthy and wealthy and solve all your relationship issues. The message back then was come to Christ and die. Come to Christ and die and find that you will truly live. Their message was not a worldly message. Test the message of the pastor, preacher, whomever, and ask yourself this. Is it worldly? Does it make my flesh happy? False teachers are of the world, and their message is, a, is, is of the world. Eat, drink, and be happy, for tomorrow we die. Spiritual-sounding carnality. Maybe you think you can't be taken in by a worldly message. Good for you, but let me tell you, the devil is good at this. He's been doing it for longer than your great, 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 great grandparents have ever been alive. There are so many people with such arrogance that I would never fall into that. And they wake up one moment and they realize I'm, I, I'm much worse than I ever could have imagined. At the temptation of Jesus, the first temptation was the temptation of the flesh. You see, these stones turn them into bread. Feed your flesh. If you are the son of God, turn these stones into bread. A worldly message can sound awfully spiritual, right? If you are the son of God, turn these stones into bread. It sounds spiritual, but it's ultimately worldly. A big name in churches used to be a guy named Tullian Trevigian. He was the grandson of Billy Graham. He was a conference speaker. He was a pastor of a mega church. He came out with several books about grace, and they were fantastic, let me tell you. But there was just maybe just one little seed in there of the issues that, that John is dealing with here, of antinomianism, meaning God's grace is so abundant, I can do what I want, and God's going to forgive me. It's just a little bit. And most people didn't even catch it. I didn't catch it. Pastor John MacArthur caught it. And he said, even from the beginning, this is, this is antinomianism nonsense, meaning um, this promotes a theology in which a person sees this and they think, well, I can do what I want. God is still going to forgive me instead of being called to righteousness, being called to holiness. And little did anybody know Tully Intervision was living also a double life steeped in sexual morality. Test the messenger. Are they teachable? 
verse 6. We are from God. Whoever knows God, God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit from the spirit of error. Who is we here? We are from God, so who is we in verse 6? The author John and his brother apostles. It also includes all the brothers and sisters who are faithful followers of Jesus Christ, who are with the apostles. It's not just them either, but it is most importantly the original teaching of Jesus Christ that John keeps referring to time and time again when he says, in the beginning. Correction and instruction. John in verse 6 reminds us that he and the, and the faithful are from God and that those who are, who are of God listen to them. If they are not from God, they don't listen. Jesus said that he is the true shepherd and that his sheep hear his voice. The great delight for the sheep is the shepherd's voice. It calms. It gives safety and instruction. It, they know that the shepherd's voice will lead them to safety instead of destruction. Instruction in the world, word, then, is not only sought, accepted, but the true joy of the child of God. Even correction, even though at the time it may be uncomfortable and I have been there or somebody had to correct me in the word and I didn't like it, but I love it today. In Acts chapter 2, I love this story. In Acts chapter 2, Paul says that when Peter came to Antioch, I posed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. He goes on to say, before certain men came from James, Peter used to hang out with the Gentiles, but when they came, he withdrew. It's like Mean Girls, but first century edition. And Paul opposes him to his face. And Peter accepts the correction. He repents. He goes back in line. It's not the only time actually Peter dealt with that. He dealt with it so many other times. I have to imagine when Peter's reading Paul's letter, he's like, I dealt with this. I said I was wrong. Why do you have to keep bringing it up? He probably didn't. He's like, he probably showed, showed it to people. See, that's where I was, but not where I am. Unfortunately, so many people are characterized by a hatred of correction, a hatred of instruction of the Word of God. They will separate instruction of the Word of God from being spiritually minded. But it is all tied up in one, for we are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our mind, with all of our soul, and all of our strength. False messengers, false prophets, false teachers, false apostles, they have a hatred of being instructed in God's Word. Discipleship? is not voluntary and is not optional. When someone comes to me and they're in our church and they want to speak, I'll start talking to them about their, about their journey with Christ and I'll ask them, who disciples you? What a weird thing to say. Because most people are like, well, nobody. I just, I just kind of develop things. That's, that's, not, that's not what we see in Scripture. You're to be discipled. There should have been somebody in charge of your discipleship when you came to Jesus Christ. And if you haven't, by the way, talk to me. I would love to disciple you. And there's a host of people here who would love to disciple you in the Word to show you what it means, what it looks like to be a, to be a believer, to instruct you in the Word. And now, now, dear friends, our lifelong pursuit is discipleship. I have people in my life I go to with questions that I hear from, that I hear instruction from the word from. Now hear me with this. You can hear me say this, and then you can surround yourself with a bunch of people who believe the same false stuff you do. In fact, that's one of the things that we're told about the end times. People gather for themselves a multitude of teachers to tickle their ears. This point can be perverted, but we understand the basic meaning of this, that those who are of God listen to the true teaching of Jesus Christ. False teachers beget false teachers. We have this phrase that readers are leaders. I always say when I hear that, depends entirely on the books they're reading. A false teacher will embrace other false teachers. But the faithful, but the faithful child of God just seeks out those who are faithful to the word of God. You'd be amazed the kind of books I read in my, in my week. I don't tell you, me, I, when people ask me what I'm reading, I don't really have much to say because I'm like, I don't want to bore them with what I'm reading. Like, I'm currently reading the Ecclesiastical History by Epubius. I'm sure that, that's a page turner. It is awesome, though. Let me tell you, it's great. Um, but I'm constantly seeking to improve myself to make sure that I am faithful, not how to draw a crowd, but how to be a faithful minister. You'll find people who do not want that will just find 
just self-help books or, or just fluff books that confirm them in their own false teachings. So in the summary, what does this mean for you? I don't charge anybody here with being a false teacher, so you're like, don't worry. We should test ourselves by these things. We should test ourselves. Right? Am I teachable? When I hear instruction that contradicts what I think, do I automatically say no because I thought it and I'm so great and so knowledgeable? Or do I search the scriptures to see, is that, is that truly in the scripture? And if it is, do I amend my behavior? Do I amend my beliefs? Test myself. What am I telling other people about God? Is it truly of, of, of the scriptures? Because you're judged on that, friends. You're judged on that, as I am. Test your favorite preachers. Just because you're your favorite preachers does not mean that they are God himself. There are many pastors this last couple years I've even told people that I've lost a lot of respect for because they're not my God. I just like their book. So when they say something against the word of God, I'll talk about it. I have no problem doing that because I'm not following them. I'm following Jesus Christ. Find your faith in Jesus Christ alone. If you're here and you're following Christ right now because of me, please don't. Many things can happen to me. Find your faith in Jesus Christ and him alone. And these things, pour over the scriptures, make them your delight so you may test everything and be found a faithful witness of Jesus Christ. Worship team, would you come up at this time? The challenge of chapter 4, verses 1 through 6 is that not only to test what we hear, but to test ourselves. Making sure that the fruit of the Spirit is found in us. That we are progressing in the Word of God. And that we are, that we are monitoring what we are thinking as well to make sure it's in conformity to the Word of God as well. Long-held beliefs that we challenge those by the Word of God. Also, we test what we hear. Here are a couple tests that we should not use. And this one is most often used in our circles, which is this, if I'm blessed, therefore it's right. I've been blessed through people's teaching that was not right. Here's the thing, if God was going to wait until you were perfect in your theology, perfect in your understanding, and perfect in your conduct, he's just going to have to wait until you die before he's going to bless you. So he'll bless you even when you're confused, even when you're, you're, you're doing something that he would wish you hadn't done. That is not validity that this is now good. The word of God tests, not our feelings, not our emotions. We test everything by God's word because we truly know that that is where peace, that is where hope, that is where our salvation is found, is in the person of Jesus Christ who is revealed in God's word. Would you please stand with us as we sing our final song?